Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week... I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. In the pitch-like darkness of London in 1942, terror stalked the shattered streets. It wasn't just the terror from the sky, as Hitler's Luftwaffe flew overhead, it was the terror created by Ghoulish Slayer. Not since those panic-ridden days of 1888, when Jack the Ripper was abroad, had London known such a reign of terror, when death, revolting and gruesome, came to four unsuspecting women in the heart of the metropolis. That is a quote from Scotland Yard Superintendent Fred Churrell. He's remarking years later about the case that shocked both him and the citizens of London in 1942. Four women were brutally murdered and two more attacked by one man, working during the blackouts in the air raids. He was known as the Blackout Ripper. To get a sense of this case, you need to consider the atmosphere in London at the time. England was deep into the war with Germany. There was a blitz on London. They'd been through 57 days of aerial bombardment from the enemy. Buildings lay crumpled on every street. The citizens were suffering from homelessness and displacement due to the bomb attacks. And at night, the streets and buildings were kept dark as a precaution against the air raids. The street lamps weren't even lit. Windows were painted over or shuttered to prevent any light escaping. It was a complete curtain of darkness. 
Bombs were constantly falling, causing London's inhabitants to seek shelter in cellars, underground train stations, and air raid shelters. This darkness and chaos was a perfect breeding ground for crime. From 1939 to 1945, crime rose over 50%. Looting was rampant. Constables were issued rifles to combat the looting, which was an unusual weapon for them to carry. Servicemen even carried their guns when on leave. So, of course, gun violence became even more rampant. It was a very difficult time, made even more so by those taking advantage of the situation. Many blamed the influx of American soldiers for giving Londoners the desire for bravado and a wannabe gangster life so prevalent in American culture. Crime became a way of life for many. It provided a means to survive for the desperate ones and a springboard for those already inclined to that way of life. Soon a spree would begin that would strike fear into the hearts of London's female population. On Sunday, February 9th, 1942, an electrician on his way to work noticed a torch or a flashlight, as we call it here, lying on the ground near an air raid shelter. He and his work companion stepped inside for a closer look, and that's when they saw the body of a woman deep in the shadows. Their shouts drew the attention of police. Brought onto the scene was Detective Chief Superintendent Frederick Churl of Scotland Yard, also known as the Fingerprint Man. He'd been fascinated by fingerprints since working with flour dust in a mill as a child. In 1914, he entered the police force, joining the Fingerprint Bureau in 1920. And then he quickly rose the ranks and became chief in 1938. In his career, he solved more cases than any detective at Scotland Yard. He was renowned worldwide for his expertise in fingerprints. He was the perfect man for the case. But the only problem for the fingerprint man was he soon discovered the assailant had apparently worn gloves. The victim had been strangled. He said, Luck was against me for the marks were only bruises, but they confirmed my impression that they had been made by a left-handed murderer. And that was about all the police knew at that point. The victim's purse had been taken, leaving identification difficult. Scattered around the body were her hat, her torch, and compact. Her skirt had been hiked up, revealing her stockings and underwear. One breast was exposed due to a tear in her vest, and the attack had obviously been sexually motivated. In an effort to identify her, constables went door to door in the neighborhood of Montague Place in Marlebone. She was soon discovered to be 40-year-old pharmacist Evelyn Hamilton. Recently jobless due to wartime cutbacks, she was in the area just for the night before planning to travel the next day to Grimsby to start a new job at a pharmacy. She left her suitcase at a boarding house while she went to supper at Lyons Corner House. Eventually, her purse was recovered around the corner, but it was missing the 80-pound severance pay she'd collected. Cheryl thought maybe this was a random murder until his phone rang the very next day. On Monday, February 10th, Cheryl was called to an apartment on Warder Street. This was the home of a very shapely blonde actress known as Evelyn Oatley, or Nita Ward. The 35-year-old had originally married a Lancashire poultry farmer, but soon left him to pursue her acting career. 
and when work dried up, she took to betting strangers for extra money. She wasn't good at living alone either. Before marriage, she lived at home with her parents. And after her divorce, she never quite got used to the sound of the air raid sirens. Having a man around not only provided money, but extra security. But this also led to her demise. Her body was discovered by two meter readers that were let into the Soho central London flat by a neighbor. As their torchlight passed over the bed, there was Evelyn Oatley, head hanging off the edge of the bed, blood streaming across the floor. She had been strangled. But Cheryl found that that wasn't the worst of the attack. Her throat had been cut by a razor. And then sometime after, she was abused by curling tongs and then sexually mutilated by a can opener. Despite this violence inflicted, the neighbors heard nothing. And the similarities to the murder of Evelyn Hamilton stuck in Frederick Charles' mind. It was cemented when he discovered prints on the can opener. He determined that these belonged to a left-handed man. The connection was both a relief as well as a fright. Did London have a serial killer on its hands? In his words, The murderer had so wantonly mutilated the victim, I found fingerprints, but alas, once more the fates were against me. The killer of Miss Oatley had no criminal record. He had never been in the hands of the police. The husband was traced to Blackpool and was able to prove that they had separated some time before and were living apart. Yardmen followed up every slender clue to find the sadistic ripper. Cheryl and his team worked hard going through the record fingerprints trying to find a match. And this was well before the advent of computer technology. Each search was painstakingly done by hand in careful comparison. Fingerprint analysis was relatively new in the tool for criminal apprehension, although the use of fingerprints had been around for a long time. They were used as far back as the time of Babylonian King Hammurabi for the use of those arrested. In ancient Chinese culture, handprints and footprints were used as evidence in crime scenes. Around 650, Chinese historian cited their use as identification. And Persians used thumbprints and government documents. In the 1700s, there were studies done concerning ridges and indentations. And then, in 1880, Scottish surgeon Dr. Henry Fields published a paper on the use of fingerprints as identification, and then he made the first use of fingerprints in printing ink. He established the first classification of fingerprint identification. Fields decided to present his ideas to the Metropolitan Police in London, but they rebuked his offer. It wasn't until 1897, when the Fingerprint Bureau was established in Calcutta, that things finally took hold. Two Indian experts named Haig and Bose were credited for the primary development of a system used for classification of criminal records, and they decided to name it for their supervisor, Sir Edward Richard Henry. Scotland Yard founded their Fingerprint Bureau in 1901. Before a match could be made, another attack occurred. 43-year-old widow, Margaret Lowe, lived in an apartment on Gosfield Street in Marlebone with her 15-year-old daughter, Barbara. Money was tight, and she'd taken to sex work partly to pay for her daughter's weekly boarding school pay. But Margaret wasn't like her working girl peers. They referred to her as the lady, 
because of her refined dress and manners. When Barbara came home from school, she was alarmed to find that her mother didn't respond to her narcs. She'd been expecting her. And when she went to the neighbors, they too became concerned. The police were called. And this time, Cheryl arrived with Chief Inspector Edward Greeno, who'd been assigned to the case. And what they found was even more gruesome than the previous attacks. Cheryl wrote, The vicious mutilations which had been wreaked upon the dead woman, and which are even more shocking than those inflicted upon Evelyn Oatley. She, like the others, had been strangled. A silk stocking still hung around her neck. On her thigh was a deep cut made by a razor. Her abdomen had been ripped open, exposing her organs, and crudely stuck between her legs was a candle. Cheryl was able to salvage prints from the candle. When the body was examined by pathologist Bernard Spilsbury, he said the injuries were made by a savage sexual... Inspector Greeno sent out already overworked officers to the streets to investigate and form some kind of a presence. At this point, all they had were fingerprints that didn't match anyone. The crime seemed to be escalating. The killer wouldn't stop. And surely there would be more victims. They had to work quickly. Of course, time was against them. That Wednesday, a 70-year-old Paddington hotel manager came home to his ground floor apartment, surprised to see the milk still sitting out. And this was well before you could buy milk conveniently refrigerated at the store. Milk was delivered and then left on your doorstep. And every morning, his much younger wife, 32-year-old Doris June, would bring the milk inside. She was a bored housewife who, from time to time, would take up men for cash and a thrill. Her husband knew nothing of these extramarital activities. He went to the bedroom to call for her, and he noticed the door was locked was another strange occurrence. Sensing something wasn't right, he notified the police who then broke down the door. And there they found his wife strangled with her own scarf. Her undergarments had been pulled halfway down her thighs. And she too had been sexually mutilated with a razor and a knife. Eyewitnesses do report seeing her the night before with a man in uniform. But they had nothing else to go on. In his 1954 book, Cheryl wrote of the attack. It was only an hour after the body of Doris Junet was discovered in her flat that I was there. One glance was sufficient to tell me that the ripper had struck again. There was no doubt about it. I made an intensive search of the room for fingerprints. On the door of the cupboard close to the bed I found several. There were more on the hand mirror and the door of the bedroom itself. I took possession of the mirror and had the doors of the bedroom and cupboard removed and brought to the yard. Women police in ordinary clothes strolled the streets in the hope of being accosted by the unknown killer. So great was the terror which swept like a wave over the square mile in which the crimes had been committed that the regular streetwalkers who haunted the area were too scared to venture out. Small wonder for nobody knew when or where the killer would strike again. That he would strike again seemed certain for the lust of killing appeared to have seized him in a merciless grip. By this time, the press made a connection in all of the cases, dubbing the unknown killer the Blackout Ripper. People seemed to eat up the sensational stories published in the papers. I mean, there hadn't been anything this morbid or shocking since Jack the Ripper. And this killer seemed almost inspired by him. He was killing at night, mostly sex workers, and mutilating the victims. 
Sex workers have one of the most dangerous professions, and now they had to contend with the possibility of being strangled and mutilated. Even regular women feared for their safety. And that would be due to the next reported attack. Greta Hayward, also known as Mary in some accounts, was at the Captain's Cabin restaurant in Piccadilly, waiting on her boyfriend. While sitting at her table, she was propositioned by a man who slid a 30-pound note across the table to her. She told him she wasn't that kind of girl and refused his offer. After that, the stories vary. Some say she accompanied him out to the street. Her account is that the man started following her home. Regardless of the exact details, all agree that he pulled her into a doorway where he attempted to kiss her and put his hands up her skirt. She told the man to stop, but he ignored her, putting his hands around her neck and squeezing tight. Greta fought to breathe, struggling against the man. As she struggled, her torch fell to the ground. The commotion attracted a delivery boy or a night porter making his nightly rounds. Seeing him, an attacker ran off. The young man noticed he was wearing a Royal Air Force uniform. Greta was on the ground, barely conscious. In his hurry to escape, the man left behind his gas mask with the RAF number 525987. Since the Blackout Ripper was thwarted in his attack on Greta, his need to find another victim needed to be met. But once again for him, things wouldn't go so smoothly. He met up with Catherine McCauley. Much isn't known about her other than the fact that she was a sex worker who took clients back to her flat in Southwark Street near Paddington Station. While she was undressing, the man that she had brought back grabbed her from behind trying to strangle her. But she wasn't about to go down without a fight. Still wearing her boots, she spun around and kicked him hard in the stomach. And after she got him off her, she screamed bloody murder. He fled, but not before throwing a five-pound note at her, as if that would nullify the situation. However, his luck had finally run out. When he had attacked Greta Hayward in the station, he accidentally left behind his gas mask. And at first, not much was made of this. But it made its way to police who looked into who the owner might be. The RAF service number of 525987 led directly back to an officer cadet named Gordon Frederick Cummins. When Greeno and Cheryl questioned him about finding his gas mask, he just brushed it off. He insisted he was at his RAF billet at St. John's Wood during the attack. He said all the guys would sneak out and cover for each other. Someone must have taken his mask, he insisted. But Cummins' story quickly fell apart after his quarters were searched. They found trophy items belonging to a few of the victims. There was the pen with Doris Joannay's initials, and cigarette cases traced back to Margaret Lowe and Evelyn Oatley. And in addition, the detectives found a bloodstained shirt, and money that he paid to Catherine McCauley was traced back to his payday records. Mortar dust found in the gas mask was similar to that found in the shelter where Evelyn Hamilton was found. And all this, added with the fingerprints, finally sealed his fate. He was arrested on February 16th, two days after the last attack. Police brought in Catherine Mulcahy to see if she could identify him in a lineup, but unfortunately she couldn't. The only thing she could remember about her attacker was his cold green eyes. But Greta Hayward didn't forget. 
She positively ID'd him. Cheryl noticed when he signed the fingerprint authorization that he signed with his left hand. So who was this man known as the Blackout Ripper? Gordon Cummins was born on February 18, 1914, in New Earwick, which is near York, England, to John Cummins and his wife Amelia. He was privately educated in South Wales, then went to Northampton Technical School. Afterwards, he trained at London at an industrial chemist firm before being let go for unsatisfactory job performance. Then he drifted from job to job before joining the RAF in 1935, starting out as ground before rising to cadet officer when the war started. Around 1936, he married a theater producer's daughter named Marjorie Stevens, but being married didn't stop his wandering eye. He always seemed to have a girl on his arm. And like many of the servicemen, he took up with many of the ladies working the streets. Cummins was handsome and very well built, so he didn't seem like a threat. He was well liked by his fellow servicemen, although he seemed to be something of a notorious liar, claiming he had noble heritage. That caused him to be nicknamed the Count or the Duke. After becoming a lead airman in the RAF, he volunteered to retrain for aircrew duties, posted to the RAF Reception Center in Regent's Park, London. He trained the new recruits. The intake ran from February 2nd to the 25th. Trainees were posted to the initial training wing at home before commencing flying training. And this was the time of his killing spree. Still, there was the fact that he didn't have a criminal record and no history of violence. So what made him commit these crimes? While in jail, he wrote to his wife, Although I don't know, I think I must be guilty. So did he not remember his crimes or know what he was doing? It's very possible that he had some mental issues that caused him to kill and to mutilate. His trial for the murder of Evelyn Oatley began on April 24, 1942, at the Old Bailey Courthouse. Initially, Dennis Noel Pritt, a member of Parliament for Hammersmith North, was acting in his defense. The trial was restarted with a new jury due to a legal technicality on April 27th, and this time Cummins was represented by a Mr. J. Flowers. Testifying against him was key witness Frederick Churl. What Cheryl did was come up with a much better way to link up fingerprints found at a crime scene with the records of suspects. The second day of trial, Cummins testified on his own behalf, once again trying to say he was at his barracks. But the evidence won out in the end. The judge called the fingerprint evidence an important, if not essential, link, and he called Cheryl the greatest fingerprint expert in the kingdom. With the evidence conclusive, it took the jury only 35 minutes to reach a verdict. He was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. He maintained his innocence to the very end. In early June, his appeal was diminished. He was executed by Albert Pierpont on June 25, 1942, at Wandsworth's prison, ironically during an air raid. It seems very fitting in a way. Charges for the three other murders still remain on file. Scotland Yard suspected he may have been responsible for two more murders in October of 1941, 
The body of 19-year-old Soho sex worker Mabel Church was found in a bombed-out building in Hampstead Road. She had been strangled. I couldn't find out any other information about the other possible murder. Had he not slipped up and left his gas mask at the scene of the crimes, who knows how long he would have kept this up. And as good as Churl was at his investigation, he still didn't have something to match the fingerprints to. Thankfully, Cummins slipped up. And that's odd, and like other serial killers, we don't really know what motivated him. His childhood seemed normal. It's really unclear why or how he cultivated his hatred towards women. I think there most definitely had to be some mental illness at play. But this being 1942, in the middle of war, he probably wouldn't have received proper health care, even if he'd been diagnosed with something. His killing spree left four women dead, and two others barely escaped with their lives. And that was just a period of one week. That was the case of the blackout ripper Gordon Cummins. For a better look at the case, I really recommend the show Murder Maps on Netflix, and that's where I first heard about it. In fact, when I started watching the story, I thought it was going to be about the serial killer John Christie. The crimes are very similar. Murder Maps is a very interesting show. I think they all take place in England, maybe all London. The narrator is very fantastic, as are the recreations. It's definitely one of the better shows i found on Netflix. I've been hearing very good things about the new series, Wormwood. It's documentary god Errol Morris's look at the MK Ultra situation. And I hear there's also going to be a podcast that goes along with it. So it should be very good. I hope everyone had a very good holiday season and a happy new year. I know a lot of us are anxious for this year to be over. So for me, it wasn't a bad year. I was able to start this podcast, which has brought me a great amount of joy. I found a great community in podcasting and true crime, and everyone is very tight-knit and very supportive. Instead of being competitive, everyone looks out for each other, so thanks for accepting me to your ranks. I may not have the high numbers, but I do feel like I have some very loyal followers, so thank you guys. A special shout-out to Mikey Williams, who's been there since the very beginning. Also want to thank special guest star Julian Tancredi for giving us the voice of Frederick Churl. That was really cool. If you want to find out more about the podcast, check out Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And thanks a lot for listening. I'll catch you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.